My name is Anna Warberry. And I'm Ben Horton. And you're listening to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. Hello, and welcome back to The Climate Briefing. My name is Anna Warberry, and I'm here today with my colleague Ben Horton. Hello, Ben. Hey, Anna. How are things? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm very well. Yeah, I'm very glad that it's Friday. It feels like it's been a long week. And of course, it's it's been sort of doubly so because I've been glued to the news, um, obviously the aftermath of the US election. But yeah, I'm just looking forward to the weekend. <laughs> yeah, I still think I have the CNN presenters at the back of my head, you know, Wisconsin, Arizona. And yeah, <laughs> we just I, count I, the I, votes. We just count like the votes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But uh, as you know, listeners, uh, the last episode we did, that was all about the US election. Uh, what a Biden presidency might mean for climate action, both in the US and uh, in the rest of the world. So I can just take this opportunity, I guess, to to promote that episode that it's worth listening to. But now moving on to this episode, because we have two really interesting speakers lined up. Ben, you did the first interview. Who did you talk to? So in this episode, we're talking about carbon pricing, which is a mechanism for encouraging companies and individuals even to reduce their carbon emissions. And I spoke to Stuart Evans from the consultancy Vivid Economics, who kind of gave us a primer on what carbon pricing is, what different strategies exist within that big umbrella term, and basically how it works. Who did you speak to, Anna? I spoke to Aglaia Espelage from the Perspectives Climate Group. And in our conversation, we focused on the so-called Article 6 negotiations, uh, which are currently ongoing as part of the COP process. And these negotiations were due to have been concluded two years ago at COP24 in Katowice, but parties just failed to agree. Mm-hmm. And uh, the hope is really now that an agreement can be reached at COP26. And I'm sure many listeners have heard about the Article 6 negotiations, but the whole thing is really quite techy. So what Aglaia and I were trying to do in the interview was really to break it down. I mean, what is it that parties are negotiating? Yep. And then going into why are these negotiations so important? Why has it been so difficult to agree? Mm. And then also trying to pinpoint down some key things that can happen in the run up to COP26 and at the COP to enable the breakthrough. Mm. I found both interviews really interesting for this episode, but it's probably the one that I found most technically challenging as as an interviewer, because it's not an area that I knew much about previously. And there's, there's quite a lot of economics in it. But I thought that what really distinguished both of our speakers is that they were able, as you say, to sort of break it down and make it far more, far, far more accessible and clear to me. So yeah, let's have a listen. So to kick off this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Stuart Evans. Stuart's a senior engagement manager at Vivid Economics and the former international climate policy advisor to Australia's Minister for Climate Change. Stuart, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be with you, Ben. So I just thought before we get into our topic of carbon pricing, could you tell us a bit about what Vivid Economics does? Sure. So Vivid Economics is a a specialist economics consultancy. We really focus in on, um, well, we we like to say we put economics to good use. And we do this by focusing in on kind of topics related to environmental economics, climate change, uh, energy policy, which means over the last five years, I've spent a lot of time uh, working with countries all around the world uh, to develop decarbonisation pathways and also help them implement carbon pricing systems. Thanks so much. Obviously, there's a danger perhaps that carbon pricing might seem quite technical to a non-specialist listener. So just to begin, could you give us an overview of 
what we mean by carbon pricing and what it aims to do? Sure. So carbon pricing can sound like a, a technical topic, but it is really quite straightforward And that it's any policy that is directly and explicitly trying to put a price on either emissions of carbon dioxide or of other greenhouse gas emissions. So what it doesn't include is some of the broader policies like direct regulations, renewable energy standards or, or fuel taxes. So basically, if it's not tied to an emissions content and it's not a direct price, it's not a carbon price. So how do they work then? It's a bit of a catch-all term, but what sort of different types of carbon pricing are there then? The fundamental idea is that you want to change, use price signals and you want to change prices in order to change behaviour. So if you put a price on something that's bad, then people are going to do less of it. It's, it's quite intuitively appealing. So mm. you're going to drive your car less or you're going to buy an electric one. And the factory down the road might move to adopt more efficient processes or technologies. The main aim is to reduce emissions, but there's also a lot of other factors that lead countries to adopt a carbon pricing. For instance, there's things called co-benefits. So for instance, this could be green growth and employment in low carbon industries. That can be a, a big motivator for certain countries. So for instance, in South Korea, this was a big part of their decision. There's also things like reduced air pollution, which can be really important in a lot of middle income countries like China, where pollution is an increasingly important issue. And for other countries, there's things such as political drivers that can lead to adoption. So if you look at the Ukraine, a big reason for them adopting a carbon price was to help build closer relations with the European Union, which of course has an emissions trading system. Let's get into that then. So when you say an emissions trading system, what does that mean? Sure. And that's where we start getting into a, a bit more complexity. So there's actually quite a bit of variety in the types of carbon prices that are operating internationally. So at the moment, there are carbon pricing mechanisms operating in over 60 jurisdictions, and they can vary quite a bit uh, in their design. So what we generally talk about when we're looking at carbon pricing is three broad categories. There's carbon taxes, there's emissions trading systems, and there's crediting mechanisms. So a carbon tax is where the government sets the price for each tonne of carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gas that's being emitted. So here, for instance, the government might say that we're going to charge $30 a tonne for each tonne of carbon dioxide. So these are in operation or in development in lots of different countries around the world. They're, they're quite simple to implement, so they tend to be quite popular. And they're in places like South Africa, Colombia, Mexico, and Singapore. Mm. And of course, also here in the UK, where we have two different carbon taxes, the carbon price support in the electricity sector and the climate change levy, which applies to other sources of emissions such as gas use. Emissions trading systems, or they're sometimes called cap and trade, are the other major type of carbon pricing mechanism. So here, instead of saying, okay, we're going to put a price of $30 a tonne, the government says, no, in this case, you can only emit a certain amount of emissions. So it might be 100 million tonnes. And then they say to businesses, okay, now you need to trade between yourselves to work out how you can do it in the most efficient manner. And it's that process of trading that leads to a price. Now, carbon pricing in this way tends to be a little bit more complex. So you tend to see it in jurisdictions that have a bit more capability. So 
at the moment, we have emissions trading systems in jurisdictions such as the EU, but we also have it in South Korea. There's several subnational systems in the US and Canada, such as in California. And we also now have a number of jurisdictions in China, so cities and provinces that also have emissions trading systems. And the plan there is that China will, will be implementing an emissions trading system nationally within the next couple of years. Then the last type of mechanism is a crediting mechanism. And this is where you credit projects or programs that work to reduce or avoid emissions. And then you allow the developers of these projects to sell those credits on the market. So in this case, a project could be something like planting trees on land that is then going to store carbon over a long period of time, or it could be a renewable energy project that reduces emissions across the electricity grid. So this is the type of mechanism that was used under the Kyoto Protocol, uh, which was known as the Clean Development Mechanism. And this is one of the types of mechanism that is also being developed under the United Nations uh, and being agreed in negotiations at the moment. So crediting mechanisms do, however, tend to be a bit of an add-on. So you normally have these operating alongside a carbon tax or an ETS. It seems that there are all sorts of different incentives at play within those different mechanisms. And obviously, carbon taxing sounds like quite a sort of punitive measure where there's a clear cost of you emitting carbon. But what are the consequences in an ETS of exceeding the cap that they're putting on? I guess a tax does sound punitive, but it need not be any more punitive than an emissions trading system. You can design these systems such that they're, they're more or less equivalent. And what happens in an emissions trading system, if you get to the end of the year and you don't have enough allowances to kind of meet the liabilities related to your emissions, you not only are going to have to work out, okay, where do I buy these allowances? But if you don't surrender them on time, you're going to be hit with an additional penalty on top of it as well. So it's not necessarily necessarily less punitive. What it can be, though, is a bit more flexible. So you can decide, okay, should I reduce emissions this year or next year? Should I kind of trade uh, some of my surplus allowances with some other firms that are participating in the markets? And that is one of the reasons why businesses tend to be more in favour of an emissions trading system, because they, they feel like it helps them manage their liabilities over time in a bit more of a flexible way. So there's a range of options and they're all relatively flexible, but what are the conditions that you need for each one? Could any country decide to set up an ETS or or what are the, the factors that you Yeah, so this is where it gets quite interesting because if you look at economic theory, then a, a carbon tax and an ETS are generally seen as, as equivalent. However, when you start looking at it in practice, there can be some big differences that lead different countries to adopt different approaches. So one of the big differentiating factors is the degree of simplicity or complexity that these mechanisms require. So for instance, carbon taxes tend to be quite easy to implement. Uh, you can often just use some of your existing tax infrastructure. So in many cases, countries will have fuel tax systems and you can build a carbon tax on top of that. So this means they tend to be quick and easy using methods familiar to both governments and also some of the firms that are covered. This is also why it's been adopted by quite a few middle-income countries that might have a bit more difficulty implementing an ETS. 
And the reason that they might have more difficulty with an ETS is because when you're creating a market, you need additional processes and infrastructure in order for it to work well. So you need greater capacity when it comes to, to governance, and you also need businesses that are able to handle this complexity. So in order for a market to function, you need to first create the allowances, you need to provide a platform on which they can be traded. You often need to develop an auctioning mechanism to sell them into the market. And then you need to regulate how firms who are participating in this market are trading between themselves so you don't have market abuse and misconduct. So this means that for a lot of countries, an ETS might be a longer-term aim, but in many cases, they might adopt a carbon tax as kind of the simpler mechanism in the short term. Saying that emissions trading systems do have some additional benefits that make them quite attractive if you start looking over the period to 2030 and beyond. And I, I think particularly with an emissions trading system, it is easier to cooperate internationally. So what you can do is you can link emissions trading systems that are operating in different jurisdictions. So an example of this is the EU and Switzerland. They have linked their emissions trading systems. If you look to North America, California and Quebec have linked their emissions trading systems. And I think that this option to kind of cooperate and have a common carbon price across these jurisdictions is something that is quite attractive, uh, particularly when you start thinking about some of the trade and competitiveness issues that are often a concern for jurisdictions that are looking to implement carbon pricing. These sound like really interesting tools that are kind of at the disposal of climate policymakers. But I suppose my question is then, what are the drawbacks to carbon pricing. It can't all be good news. <laughs> sure. It's certainly not all good news. I'm not sure that you can kind of point to carbon pricing and say a drawback is X, Y, and Z, but you do need to say, okay, how do we integrate this mechanism and this policy within a broader suite of policies that are targeted at addressing climate change. Because carbon pricing is really, it's an important tool in that you do want to create this price mechanism, this incentive for both uh, consumers and also for firms to reduce their emissions, but it doesn't solve all of the problems. So for instance, quite often we hear from large industrial emitters that the challenge isn't necessarily the price signal, it's being able to finance new investment and the cost of that. So you might need mechanisms in order to address some of these other market failures. And I think the other challenge that we've seen with carbon markets is that it is a new form of policy. It is a new tool in our, in our tool chest. And whenever uh, you're dealing with new policies, there's bumps in the road, there's kind of challenges that you face, and you uh, have a process of learning over time. And I think with carbon markets, that process hasn't always been completely smooth. Could you tell us a bit more about then the history of carbon pricing? I mean, you, you mentioned that there was some early form of it coming out of the Kyoto Protocol. But since then, how have these been adopted and what have been the successes of them? So at a very high level, the academic literature and the studies that have been done have shown that countries with carbon pricing do reduce emissions at a faster rate than countries without carbon pricing. So there was a recent study that looked at more than 140 countries, including a number of which, which had carbon pricing and a number of which, which did not. And basically what they found was that the growth rate of emissions was 2% lower each and every year on average in countries that had a carbon price compared to a kind of equivalent country. So it is effective. 
But saying that, there have been some of these bumps in the road, some challenges. And I would say that the largest set of challenges probably came almost a decade ago now. So after the 2008-09 recession, where we saw that there was a fairly significant drop in industrial activity, frankly, all around the world. But what we saw was that in certain carbon markets and in the EU carbon market in particular, prices fell very rapidly and they stayed low for a long period of time. So what happened as a result of that is that people have moved away from an approach that kind of seeks to differentiate emissions trading systems from carbon taxes in a very kind of clear and pure way. And now what we're seeing is mechanisms that try and capture the benefits of both an emissions trading system and a carbon tax. And the way they do this is by making the supply within an emissions trading system more flexible to take account of some of these economic shocks and some of these other challenges that you can face when you have a market operating. So in the EU, they have introduced a, a mechanism called the market stability reserve. And the aim of that is to reduce supply in the market when it looks like there are too many allowances in circulation, and then to re-inject those allowances in the markets when there's not enough around. It's not only the EU that has introduced this kind of mechanism. This is now standard practice in all emissions trading systems operating globally. And what we've seen is that with the onset of COVID, that most of these carbon markets have held up surprisingly well. So in the EU, you've seen prices that are broadly equivalent to the prices we saw a year ago. And this is also true in jurisdictions like South Korea, in California, and in New Zealand, all of which have introduced some of these type of mechanisms. So this is what I mean about these policies having a learning curve over time. What I think we've seen is that we finally understand how these things work, and we're now able to put these policies to their best use, which is a really good time for it, given that we need to start ratcheting up ambition uh, globally right now. Now too. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to ask a question that I probably should have asked earlier in this conversation, which is about how these mechanisms affect multinational companies. How does it work, for example, in an, in an ETS framework, if you've got a company that has activities in all, all parts of the world, you know, globalization has meant that they manufacture certain aspects of their products in several different countries, and then they ship them between each other. If they're part of an ETS, do they just have to ensure that the emissions that they're responsible for within that jurisdiction are part of this? Or does it apply to all of their activities? Is there a way to ensure that multinational companies don't just emit loads in maybe developing countries and keep their emissions relatively low in Europe? Sure. So... The general approach that, that occurs both in kind of carbon pricing systems, but, but also within the broader global climate policy architecture is that countries are responsible for emissions that happen within their jurisdictions. And because policymakers are, are working within that framework, what they tend to do is to say, okay, for our carbon pricing mechanism, it is going to apply to emissions that occur here. So that does mean that in some cases, if you are dealing with global supply chains, there could be emissions that are occurring at some points in the production process that aren't reflected in the price that is passed on to consumers, particularly, as you say, if this is occurring in developing countries where they might be several years from being 
able to implement a carbon price. They might not have the capacity and they might it might not be, frankly, in their interest to do so immediately. So there are approaches that policymakers use to try and address this. The key way is to try and reduce the differential cost that would relate to emitting carbon in a jurisdiction that has a carbon price compared to one that does not. And there's several approaches to do this. I guess one of the one of the ones that has really been brought into focus over the last couple of years is the potential use of border carbon adjustments. These basically aim to put a price on carbon, put a price on emissions that would be happening in an exporting country when those goods come into the jurisdiction. So it's basically like a tariff. And have those border adjustment mechanisms been quite widely adopted or are they still relatively new? So they're still very new, but they are something that has been considered in quite a bit of detail over the last last decade. So the challenge that you have with border adjustment mechanisms is that they can be really kind of complex to implement. So it's just kind of quite difficult to be able to trace the emissions that are embedded in a product. So particularly if you look at a complex product like a car, where you might have thousands of components, and you're looking at an integrated supply chain that could involve many countries, it's really hard to trace back the emissions that are associated with that. So that complexity has meant that for a long time, these mechanisms have been a a bit of a a theoretical artifact. But what we've seen over over the last year is a a real focus from the European Commission and from the European Union to start looking at, okay, are there ways in which we could start using these measures in practice? And what I think you're likely to see as this policy gets developed is that they're going to try and apply these adjustments where it's simple. So they're going to do it in a very targeted manner. So it's likely to be on relatively simple products such as electricity, steel, cement or chemicals, where you've got a pretty good vision of what the supply chain looks like and you can trace back emissions uh, through that production process. Now, the other challenge with border adjustments is that they create risks under the international trade regime, particularly for compliance under the World Trade Organization. Although this does really depend on on how you implement them. So using this kind of simple targeted approach is generally seen as a way of implementing these measures that mitigate some of these risks. But it does also represent a little bit of a gambit from the EU. It is seen in many cases as being a a bit of a a kind of political play to try and incentivize other countries to adopt carbon pricing mechanisms so they don't have these adjustments levied against them. And what I think is really kind of interesting is if you play out some of the political implications. So one of the things we've also seen in the last couple of weeks is that Joe Biden has announced that his administration would also look into the application of border carbon adjustments. And uh, I think that if they do introduce carbon pricing, which I'm pretty certain they'll be looking to do, that it will almost definitely include a border carbon adjustment. So this is really uh, in line with... I guess, the history of carbon pricing in the US, because we have seen proposals go to Congress before to implement some sort of emissions trading system, a cap and trade system, as they call it in the US. And all of these credible proposals, all of the ones that have really got some traction, have included a carbon adjustment mechanism of some sort. So I'd expect that it would be there. And in that case, if you are in a world where you have the EU and the USA implementing a border carbon adjustment, 
it's really hard to see many people kind of challenging that at the World Trade Organization. Uh, the one country that, that you could imagine challenging it is, is China. Uh, but of course, China is looking to implement a carbon market of, of their own. So depending on how you apply these adjustments, they might be exempt from the outset. And if that is the case, then I think we're likely to see these mechanisms becoming a fairly common feature of countries' uh, climate policies fairly quickly. Thanks very much. And I'm really glad that we've moved on to the geopolitical aspects of this, I guess, in a sense. I wanted to ask a question about how carbon pricing fits into the ongoing process with the United Nations and and the COP process, which is obviously a major focus of this podcast. And in recent weeks, we've seen a range of countries sort of update their ambitions around a time frame towards net zero emissions. The most recent case just this week is uh, is uh, South Korea, but we've also seen Japan and China in recent weeks make statements to this effect. I just wondered if you can tell us a bit about how carbon pricing mechanisms might fit into these ambitions and more broadly into the kind of COP process. Sure. So... The main way that I see carbon pricing playing into these negotiations is really still looking at it from a domestic lens. And while this is kind of flowing through into people's international target setting, the kind of nationally determined commitments that they are making, I think the reason that it is flowing through is because as countries introduce carbon pricing and and as they start to develop climate policy packages that are able to reduce emissions at scale, then that gives them confidence to start adopting uh, some of these more ambitious targets. So that's the very kind of objective of the Paris Agreement, right? The idea is that you you start somewhat slowly, but with a broad group of countries, Mm -hmm. and then you ratchet up ambition over time. And I think that that's what we're seeing in a lot of these jurisdictions that have adopted net zero. So if you start with, say, the European Union, they have had carbon pricing for a long time, and they have recently adopted a net zero target. If you look at smaller countries like New Zealand, carbon pricing is going to play a very big role in their policy mix to try and hit net zero. And if you if you look at the countries that we've just talked about, China, Japan and South Korea, two of those, China already has in place a number of emissions trading systems at a subnational level and is introducing a national ETS. South Korea has a national ETS and Japan doesn't, well, it does have some subnational emissions trading systems at the moment. It doesn't have a national ETS, but I wouldn't be surprised if in five, 10 years time, it also has a carbon price in place. So then this really kind of shows us how the domestic and the international can be really closely intertwined, where we're trying to hit an international objective. We are trying to limit global warming to well below two degrees Celsius. But the considerations that are at play in a a number of countries are often domestic. And if we can create circumstances within countries that allow them to say, okay, well, I think that we can achieve these targets with some confidence. I think we know what we're doing. We have the policies in place, then you're much more likely to see this ambition ratcheting happen over time. We're coming towards the end of our conversation. And I just wanted to ask one final question, really, which is how you see this developing in the future, depending on who you speak to on this on this issue of climate change there really doesn't seem to be much time left to meet the <laughs> the ambition to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees and obviously we're talking about mechanisms that as you say are very distributed and and they're very much about what national governments can implement within their own jurisdictions 
Do you think that carbon pricing is central to achieving these international ambitions? And do you think that in the sort of near future, we're going to see these mechanisms become far more widespread? I think it's fair to say that carbon pricing on its own is not going to fix climate change. You need a range of policies to do that. You need flows of international finance. So you you need a broader strategy if you're going to achieve that objective. And that's true at an international level and it's true at a national level. I think what you can say is that carbon pricing will be a central component to any strategy that is really credible at trying to address climate change. So we've already talked about the role that it can play domestically. And I think you just need to look at the UK and the role that carbon pricing has played in the very rapid decarbonisation of its electricity sector to be able to see how effective it can be when it's placed within a a broader credible policy mix. But I think if you look towards uh, other jurisdictions, the fact that you can put in place carbon pricing mechanisms that are comparatively simple, you can use some of these simple carbon taxes, that there is an opportunity for this to spread really kind of far and wide. And I think one of the other really important points is that carbon pricing can help to facilitate uh, further cooperation internationally. So we've already talked about carbon border adjustments, and this can be really used as a means to push countries to increase their ambition and to adopt uh, the kind of policies you need to start reducing emissions. We also see emissions trading systems providing a bit of a carrot. So they provide opportunities for cooperation and for mutual gain. So I think we see this quite clearly through the linking of emissions trading systems. So Quebec and California's cooperation, this has played a major role to advance cooperation in the EU. And I think that we're going to see this occurring more and more over the next few years. I think we're also going to see kind of crediting mechanisms playing quite an important role, uh, particularly for channeling finance from the developed world to the developing world. What we need to see is significant flows of finance in order to support investment in emissions reductions in the developing world, in Africa, in South and Southeast Asia, in Latin America. And I see carbon markets uh, being one of the key tools to channel that finance. So we have the sticks, we have the carrots as well, and we also know that we can make them work. So I'm really quite optimistic about the prospects for carbon pricing, particularly over the next decade. Stuart Evans, thank you so much for joining us. Great, thanks very much, Ben. So I'm delighted to be joined by Aglaya Espelage, who is a consultant and project manager at Perspectives Climate Group, where she works on carbon markets, carbon pricing instruments, and Article 6 negotiations. Aglaya, thank you so much for speaking to us. I'm very happy to. So after having listened to the first interview of this podcast, all listeners will be experts on, or at least familiar with, what carbon pricing is and what it aims to achieve. So I thought in our conversation, we'd really try to focus on the Article 6 negotiations, which are currently ongoing as part of the COP process. And I'm really delighted to be talking to you because I know you're a true expert on this topic. And I think a lot of people have probably heard about the Article 6 negotiations and they might understand that they are a big deal within the COP process. But I can also imagine that not everybody would know exactly what the parties are negotiating and what the whole kind of process aims to achieve. So I thought I'd start by asking you to explain in the simplest terms possible what the Article 6 negotiations are all about and how they link to carbon pricing and international carbon markets. 
Yes. So Article 6 of the Paris Agreement is, is one article among many. And this article offers parties of countries that have ratified the Paris Agreement to cooperate internationally to meet their own targets and uh, to raise ambition in mitigation and adaptation. This includes international market-based cooperation. This means that there is a price put on carbon and the carbon content of an, uh, the mitigation of a specific activity is then quantified and then sold to another country. The other country finances it and then can claim this as their own achievement, even if the mitigation as such has happened somewhere else. The idea is that for the atmosphere, it doesn't matter where the mitigation is achieved. So it is possible to cooperate internationally if it's easier or more effective or important to reduce emission in another country. What is important is that if you do this kind of transaction of mitigation, that you do not double count it towards a national target or towards different kinds of targets. So no company could say, hey, this is my mitigation, if the country also says, this is my mitigation. And that's the idea. So in Article 6, international cooperation should ensure this kind of integrity and also help to raise global ambition. And there are basically three options for countries to engage in this cooperation, and two of which are market-based. The first option is countries can cooperate among themselves and set up their ways of cooperating. This can be transactions of so-called carbon credits, but it can also be linking their emission trading schemes. It can be for specific projects or programs or policies implemented, so very different. And there will also be an international mechanism, the so-called Article 6.4 mechanism, where actors, if they want to, can register their projects and get credits for this. And these credits then can be sold on the carbon market. And then there's a third avenue, which is not so directly linked to carbon pricing, which is uh, non-market-based cooperations, where parties may cooperate on climate finance, technology development, and transfer capacity building. So these are the three aspects countries are now negotiating rules for. And these rules shall ensure that the cooperation is upholding high standards of integrity, that there is not this double counting, and also that we have this contribution to the Paris Agreement goals which are very ambitious. Thanks, that's a really great explanation. Just so that it is 100% clear, you spoke about kind of helping to raise climate ambition. Is that is that why these negotiations are important in your view? Yes, yes, they are. Because it's, it's not only about raising ambition. First, it's about doing no harm, right? It's about getting the rules right. It's about getting them in a manner that uh, a mitigation that is transacted and sold is actually a real mitigation that is that is permanent, that is being calculated on very conservative assumptions, that represents an activity that is going beyond what would have happened otherwise. But then it is also about, okay, if we have scarce financial resources to fund mitigation, additional mitigation, we want it to go where it actually can help countries or entities to raise ambition and to move towards a pathway which is in line with the Paris Agreement goals. So yes, this is why it's really important. You were one of the speakers at a diplomatic briefing we hosted on this topic quite recently. And there I remember that we talked about Article 6 or cooperation under Article 6, that it could help channel finance to developing countries. 
could you talk us through that process a little bit as well? Yes, so usually many developing countries, now under the Paris Agreement, they put forward their national contributions to this Paris Agreement goals. But they also say that, okay, this is what we can achieve with our own domestic means and our current levels of capacity. And for anything beyond that, we will need support. And this support can be very different. It can be a technology development transfer, capacity building, climate finance. But here also cub markets can play an important role for any kind of mitigation action that goes beyond what the country can do. There is often a much higher mitigation potential there that can be then financed through carbon markets. And this is how, if carbon markets are designed correctly, we can channel finance to these countries and globally contribute to more action. So the negotiations in Article 6 have been going on for quite some time. I mean, the hope was that an agreement could be concluded at COP24 in Poland in 2018, when the rest of the so-called Katowice rulebook was agreed. And I mean, that failed. Uh, and then the negotiations continued at COP25 in Madrid last year. Uh, but again, the conference ended without an agreement in place. And eyes now turned to COP26. In your view, why are the negotiations on Article 6 so difficult? And perhaps before you answer that, you could perhaps explain what the Katowice rulebook is, because that might not be 100% clear to listeners. So the Paris Agreement was adopted in 2015, and it contained a lot of different articles. And it was adopted by consensus, so it was a great milestone. But it was not yet ready to be implemented. The details were not there yet. And a very positive surprise, only one year later, parties came together again and said, like, okay, wow, this agreement is already entering into force. We need to get that rulebook going. They started negotiating all the details. And the most important part of the Paris Agreement is the transparency framework, because uh, all parties put forward their own nationally determined targets to help achieve the Paris Agreement goals. So it's a very bottom-up process. But then they need to report on it. And therefore, this transparency framework is, is the backbone of the Paris Agreement. And it was a very good thing that we managed to achieve that uh, adoption of the rules for the transparency framework at COP24 in Katowice. That was the major achievement of that conference. And Article 6 is, is one piece of the puzzle. And it is a bit complex for different reasons. And this is why it had not been approved so far. And we hope that we will still manage to do so in the future. And maybe to, to just give five reasons why it has been uh, so complex. So first, as now all targets are defined by countries themselves, it's a much more complicated system now than what we had under the Kyoto Protocol, where there were top-down quantified emission targets. And now if you expressed your mitigation and a credit, it could be easily traded and accounted for, and it was not really difficult. Now, NDCs can take a lot of different forms. They can just be a promise to implement a certain activity without having the quantified impact on, on the emissions of the country behind it. And it gets much more complicated to then account for mitigation in that kind of framework, you need a lot of conversion, you need a lot of data, you need more information. So it's very closely linked to the transparency overarchingly, but it's difficult to fit Article 6 into that. And then it is also clear that countries have very different ideas about how they want to use Article 6, international market-based cooperation. And many countries already have international markets cooperation ongoing, 
like Switzerland and you are linking the emission trading schemes or Canada and Quebec. You have Switzerland that has you know, already an agreement with Peru on exchanging some mitigation outcomes. So a lot of countries come to the table with very specific ideas of how the rules should be so they can link it to their own national processes. And that makes it more complex. Then we have a very important issue, which is a different understanding of what these markets are supposed to deliver. And here the question of ambition comes in. Is ambition in nationally determined contributions? And then markets just are implementing that. You know, they just quantify and result in cost-effective mitigation and in a, a very liquid market. Or do we want to have more rules, a more top-down definition of what ambition is and what kind of activities the carbon market can invest in? So this is one very big conflict, which comes in in very technical details then. And we have, of course, as always, these are international negotiations, very different country group interests, what they want to achieve with that, and also financial interests that are behind this. Because as I said, carbon markets are seen as an important tool to raise money. And uh, while I have been talking about ways to raise mitigation finance, many countries that have not really benefited from carbon markets, they also want to see more contribution of carbon markets to adaptation finance. Thank you very much for that. Perhaps you could just pick up a bit more on the different positions of the various country groupings. I understand we can't go through them all, but uh, the EU, for instance, and the G77, I don't know if they have a common position on this, but what are some of the main things that they are pushing in the negotiations? So the EU really wants to see new rules for the Article 6.4 mechanism, uh, the centralized UN mechanism that gives up then carbon credits. And they want to see this kind of contribution to ambition that we're seeing. So this is one thing they're really pushing for. Um, and they also are pushing for a very robust accounting when you trade. Uh, so there is no double counting with your national targets. And then maybe the G77 is not so active in Article 6 negotiations because it's such a large group and there's so many different interests in there. But the demand for adaptation finance is something which is supported by the whole G77 group. So they really want to see some way of commitment to raise more adaptation finance in, in carbon markets. Then there are also other groupings, I think, maybe less traditional. There is a group that really pushes for strong accounting rules, the so-called uh, San Jose group, and also upholds principles like sustainable development in carbon markets. We have buyers that are already now interested in buying these mitigation outcomes. So they come to the table with their own ideas, like Switzerland, who is already starting these kinds of international corporations. And then we have countries that have benefited a lot from the CDM, like Brazil, India, and uh, also China that have certain interests to see a continuation of that and, and to be continue to able to use these international mechanisms for, for the domestic policy. But that also have a very strong interest in that all CDM projects that are ongoing can continue under the new framework. And even that Brazil and India also very interested that old credits or credits that were issued until 2020 can still be used in post-2020 markets, uh, which is a position not shared by many other parties. 
And then there are other countries like the least developing country group, the small island development states, and also the African group, which have not really benefited uh, historically from international carbon markets. And they want to see that their capacity needs are taken into account in the new rules. And also that there's a level playing field when entering or trying to attract finance through carbon markets. And the balance between the kind of corporations parties set up for themselves and the UN mechanism, which will be used more by countries with lower capacity levels. So would you say that progress is being made in the negotiations and that the process is kind of going in the right direction or is there a stalemate? I would say that already at COP24, everyone thought like, okay, we have sorted out most issues. It's only the political things that are in the air. And to be fair, we did not really progress on the political questions. And and the big political questions is uh, continuing to use uh, pre-2020 credits in a post-2020 market and the issue of generating adaptation finance. There are some more issues like the requirement to contribute to overall mitigation, so no offsetting anymore, but cancelling a part of the mitigation that you achieve. So these issues are still burning, but negotiations really continued. And what we see is that a lot of the technical issues, especially accounting, really move forward to a better understanding that is shared by by the people participating in the negotiations. And a lot of work has gone into getting the details right. So it was not a complete waste of time. And I think it helps to set the rules in a way that uh, we don't run into problems later because negotiations are often rushed. And we can just hope that all the progress that was you know, achieved uh, in the last conferences is now not put into question again, and that parties really focus on sorting out the last details that are still there, building bridges, and to help move us forward rather than reopening things that we've been discussing for, well, since 2015 now. So let's just imagine for one minute that no agreement is reached at COP26 and that parties actually never manage to agree on this, just from a hypothetical point of view. I mean, what would happen then and how damaging would that be? And is an agreement on Article 6 absolutely necessary if we are to reach the goals of the Paris Agreement? It is difficult to say what the actual contribution of carbon markets can be to the goal of the Paris Agreement, because this depends on so many parameters. But let's say that it wouldn't help uh, not having the rules. For for once, international cooperation that is set up by parties is most likely to be able to continue, because already in the enhanced transparency framework, there's some provisions of how parties need to report on that. And Article 6 of the Paris Agreement is not going away, even if there's no rulebook to it. So yes, parties may set up their own ways of internationally cooperating, but we will not have these agreed rules. So we don't know. There will be uh, some forms of cooperation that respect environmental integrity. There may be others that do not. And without the rulebook, we don't really have the means at the UN level to keep an eye on them and to, to ensure that we know what is going on and if what is being traded as mitigation outcome is actually helping the cause of the Paris Agreement or not. So that's one concern. The next one is that without this rulebook, there will be no Article 6.4 mechanism. And this mechanism is important, especially for developing countries that don't have the capacities to build the whole framework up for themselves when cooperating with other parties. And it can be an important mechanism also to guide new standards, new methodologies that can be used by private actors on the voluntary carbon market. So it, it would be quite problematic not to have this mechanism. 
And yeah, I, I don't think that it will help not having the rules. It won't hinder international market-based cooperation, but it will put the whole accounting framework for it on very shaky grounds, including accounting for voluntary car market, where there's been a lot of interest in scaling it up. Uh, and I see a big risk that without a rule book, there will be a lot of double claiming between country targets and carbon neutrality promises by companies. So I still hope for an Article 6 rule book, and I think it matters. Great. Thank you so much. That was actually going to be my, my final question of this interview. If you're hopeful about the prospects of reaching agreement at COP26, and also if you think there are any kind of key things that need to happen in the run-up to COP26, and perhaps at COP26, of course, as well, for an agreement on Article 6 to be reached. Yes, I think I'm still hopeful, but uh, seeing that all the little things, all the little progress made by, by technical negotiators, I'm still hopeful. But yeah, at COP25, everyone was saying, oh, it's good. Now we have the whole COP to focus on Article 6 because it was the main topic. So that's good. And it didn't help because all the pressure on Article 6 led to a higher political profile of the political issues associated with it. So that didn't work out. Now at COP26, there are other big issues like the update of NDCs, um, climate finance contributions. And we'll see if that helps, uh, if, if one has a broader package to look at and not only Article 6. Yeah, I'm not sure how it will go, but let's hope that it helps. And what is important in the run-up is that there is a continuous exchange among negotiators and among different parties across you know, the well-known established coalitions and people who get along anyways, really a bridge building process, which is inclusive. And I think this is a great challenge now in the context of the COVID pandemic that we do not have these in-person meetings anymore. And we need to build these bridges in different and in virtual ways. So I hope that no time is lost there. And at COP26, it's really important to alert parties of what's on the table, to make sure they work together, and to make sure we don't go backwards on issues that we had already resolved at a technical level. And then hopefully, with some bridges built, uh, we can move towards an Article 6 rulebook. Thank you so much, Aglaya. This has been really great. Thank you very much. Well, Ben, I thought that was really interesting. What did you think? Yeah, I, I now feel super informed in an area that I don't think I'd heard of before this year. So thank you very much. <laughs> and yeah. thank you to our guests. <laughs> Ready to tackle the Friday dinner conversation. Absolutely. Um, well, super. And listeners, we'll be back with another episode before Christmas, which will focus on the shifting politics of climate change, because mm. it's five years ago since the Paris Agreement was adopted. We have one year to go until COP26. There are key players which are doing very interesting things when it comes to climate change. We have China committing to reaching carbon neutrality in 2060. We have the US with a new president and a whole range of countries are being really taking steps forward. But mm -hmm. at the same time, the geopolitical situation and multilateralism is under strain. So I think that will be a really interesting episode. And I hope you listen in then. You can also, of course, go back and listen to our previous episodes. They're available on the Chatham House website, on Libsyn, on Spotify, and on a whole range of other podcast platforms. Yeah, absolutely. You yeah. can listen to the Climate Briefing 
archive wherever you're listening to this episode and if you've enjoyed it or you're finding it useful please do leave a review and subscribe to us because it makes it far easier for other people to discover their podcast and if you want to catch up with the rest of the work that Chatham House produces on climate change and environmental issues then you can follow our energy environment and resources program on twitter at ch underscore environment until next time i'm ben horton I'm Anna Orberry. And this is The Climate Briefing. Mm-hmm.